Thank you for downloading this edition of Against the Odds. To find out more, visit the Against the Odds page of philip-anderson.co.uk. This recording lasts for approximately 30 minutes and is copyright. No unauthorized broadcasting, public performance, or copying is permitted without the expressed permission of the copyright owner, Philip Francis Anderson. Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of individuals who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. If you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk. And a very warm welcome to this, the first episode in the first series, from where all the interviews you're about to hear over the coming months are a clear testament to the power of the human spirit. Something very welcoming in these uncertain times. And my guest today, Martin Rhodes from Stoke-on-Trent, is no exception. Martin, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much, Philip. It's a place to be here. Well, looking at your life, Martin, it would seem that it hasn't been without its struggles. In fact, a lot of what occurred happened when you were very young. I mean, you were born three months premature, too much oxygen cost you your eyesight, and your father leaving the matrimonial home when you were just six years old, citing your blindness as one of his excuses. Can't have been easy for you, to say the least. But we mustn't forget that it's also about your passion for life and about the freedom and the joy you discovered through the gift of sharing. From where I would like to start today's interview, if I may, because in your early teens you discovered information technology, which you've now made one of your lifelong passions, despite not turning it into your career. But from where you've been sharing all your knowledge and expertise and findings with people so readily without fee, and it's with that in mind I'm very interested to know, from where has this whole idea of yours for sharing come from, do you think? It's, it's funny, actually. It's interesting that you should ask. It's something that stems from my upbringing because I, I was brought up partially by my mum and partially by my granddad. I've got the sort of traditional outlook that I got from my grandfather and the a younger outlook, if you like, for want of a better word, from my mum because my mum obviously had me when she was 17. And I think if you've got something, if you can share it with somebody, it was drummed into me from a very young age, really. That's interesting. Do you feel then, if you were to make a career out of it, all that would change? Yeah, I, I feel like it would take away the joy that I derive from from doing it, from giving something back. I mean, for example, I, I've been known to install software to see how it works, purely for the enjoyment of teaching someone else how to use it. Like, I, I probably don't even end up using it myself that much. I just enjoy teaching other people how to use it. What do you get out of sharing your knowledge and expertise with other people? I derive a great deal of satisfaction from knowing that somebody has gained a better quality of life or perhaps I've helped somebody overcome an obstacle. Like, for example, perhaps somebody is trying to edit a document in Word, for example, and they're not sure of a particular shortcut key of how to do something or they're trying to install some software. They're not quite sure which folders the, the software, like the programming software is supposed to go into. You even set up a telephone help line service 
for people um, in need of help with their IT problems? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, me and a group of friends of mine set up a, a telephone help service, and we, we also had an online email service. We called ourselves Blind Tech Support. We did JAWS installation help, for example, screen reader installation. We helped people set up sort of team talk servers. And uh, one member of our team that was really good at web design, so we we helped a gentleman set up a website for his radio station that he wanted to run, an online radio station that he wanted to run. That was quite interesting. We got chat to quite a few different people from doing that from all over the world. Really, we, we don't do it now. It's something that sort of went sort of folded over time. Like everybody sort of went off in different directions. And and you went into amateur radio. I went into amateur radio, yeah. And you've helped yeah, me out. Just... And you've helped me out on various occasions as well, which I'm terribly grateful for. No, no problem. No problem at all. I mean, it's how you and I, to some degree, well, became friends some years ago. Um, yes, it is. It is you yeah. approached me when I was the managing director of my own company, Braille Transcription UK Limited. And you came at the age of about 18, 17, 18, looking for work experience and... I remember at the time, although I hadn't anything I could offer you at that point, a friendship was cemented. It certainly and, was. Uh, we've been friends ever since. And what, you're 38 now, so it's 21 years ago. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we had a piano, didn't you? A really nice piano, if I remember rightly. I think that was what I was fascinated with about you, wasn't it? When I invited you, I said, oh, come on, Martin, you know, I want to hear you play because I think I had only got as far as grade one at school, embarrassingly so. And um, I think you told me you, I think you got to grade two, so I thought, well, he's going to have to be better than me. Against the odds, celebrating those who have conquered in the face of adversity with Philip Anderson. And presumably, you can teach all of this from personal experience, having had the better quality of life as a direct consequence of using the equipment yourself. Yes, and also going to going to two specialist colleges helps as well. I, when I was at the Royal National College for the Blind in Hereford, I, I learned a lot of IT skills. I did a did an ECDL course, which is a, a European computer driving license. And I did a T180 course, which is it's living in a network world. That, that was an open university course. And I gained so much knowledge about sort of like computer networking and wireless networking through doing those courses that, I feel that was invaluable for me to then be able to go out and go on and help other people. Did you have a vision of the future so far as the technology was concerned and the learning was concerned back then? Had you got any plans? Uh, I always wanted to derive from it as much as I possibly could because I, I always struggled with Braille. I was never a keen Braille reader. I sort of threw myself wholeheartedly into IT and sort of computer-based technology using using screen readers in the hope to gain as much out of it as I possibly could. And I feel I have done that. So that that was my ultimate aim to kind of find a way of being able to communicate through a medium that wasn't Braille because I, I was I'm, I was very very anti-Braille and I, I still am much to my own detriment because my, my spelling I believe has suffered as a result. I, I find it takes up a lot of space. I, I'd much rather type out a document on a you know on a laptop or a a desktop or you know make, make perhaps on you know on, on on a phone or ipad i started being taught braille at the age of i was five when i first started learning braille five six years old but i really struggle with it but a lot of that is down to laziness it's partly down to laziness and partly down to the fact that i just never took to it a lot of people say yes but you're blind you know you, you must use braille you have to use braille you're blind and i thought well why so you know? what was it about 
the speech technology then that you found to be the most helpful? Well, I've, I've always been a good listener. And I found that if I listen to uh, a screen reader, although it's synthetic, I just found that it enhanced my quality of work. It enabled, it, it enabled me to work more quickly and be more productive because I, I found that when I read Braille, it took me so long to decipher what I was reading that I couldn't remember what I was reading about. I struggled to concentrate, especially if you're reading, was it the Firmaform pages? They, they were oh, like yes. plastic, but yeah, that used to make your fingers really sweaty, I found. Yeah, we used to have to put talcum powder on it during the exams. Yes, <laughs> yes we did. I remember those days. On top of that, you had other issues at school, didn't you, because of your sight impairment and so on. And it goes back quite early on in your school days, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, even in, in my early days, like right back to my my, my, my days in nursery, the pupils there, because I went to mainstream nursery, they didn't want anything to do with me. Like the, the parents told them, so they're not not to play with me if you like, because I was blind, I was different. For example, at school we used to have like a desk, if you like, set out or a table with plasticine, and we would go and make sort of plasticine models, or we'd go and play in the sand, play, you know, play with sand and things like that, and water. If I went there, I noticed that sometimes children would move away from me, and I don't. I was later on told that obviously the parents must have told them to do that. If if you want to, play, if you're a child, your natural reaction is to want to play. You, you know, you you find a toy in nursery and you want to play with it. So of course you are going to go in hands on, I guess, aren't you? Because obviously you're more handsy, you're more tactile. For obviously you can't help it. I think that put a lot of people off. When I was younger, I just thought, well, what's wrong with me? Like, what? Why am I so different? It's almost like being deprived of the ability to flourish due to ignorance, I guess. And it, it's difficult to kind of create relationships in, in that kind of environment anyway, because you are different. The longer I was at nursery, I think a lot of children became curious and that they started to think, well, why am I being told to avoid this person? That They became interested after a while. The curiosity got the better of them, I guess. And that's when I started to make friends. None of which I can really remember overly well now, but there's there's one particular friendship I, I made for life, and it, this, this young man I'm talking about still still one, one of my best friends to date. And all of this can't have been easy for your mother. I appreciate that it must have been hard for them to come to terms with as well. I mean, imagine imagine being told that at 17 years old, for example, from my mum's point of view, that your your son's blind and he's going he's going to be blind for the rest of his life. I mean, if she. She lost a lot of she lost a lot of friends. They wouldn't come around to her house and bring their children to visit, for example, they wouldn't pop in for coffee or anything like that for a while. It took them a long time to to understand it. The only person who really did stay close friends with my mom was a lady who had a daughter herself who was blind. So they had that common ground. I made a friend out of it and she's still a still a close friend today. But yeah, I remember how difficult that was for my mom. We talked about it. She shed a fair share of tears. Because she was so sad, because she was still struggling to come to terms with my situation. That in turn affected my granddad, although I think he was very instrumental in helping my mum to dust herself off, if you like, and say, look, this is the situation we've, we've got to deal with it, if you like. Did she feel Went responsible? Through. Yeah, yeah, she did. She did feel, she, there was a, 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 a huge element of guilt there, I think. You, you've, you've got the elements of guilt in thinking, goodness me, I've caused this. And then you've also got the elements of, well, I need a friend to talk to. I don't want to burden my family. I don't want to burden my mother and father about this. I need someone outside of my family I can talk to. I think, if anything, it, the, the easiest person to accept it was me. Really? <laughs> Again, it, like, yeah, because I, I, I've never done any different. 
mm. like I don't, I've never seen. And you don't, as the old saying goes, you've never missed, you don't miss what you've never had. And I think it's, it's harder for family to accept a situation that you're going through than the person who's going through it. Without sounding too personal, Martin, was there any ever any talk of you being put up for adoption? Did your mother ever feel that low in herself that she perhaps felt she couldn't cope? There was talk of me going to a special school. There was never any talk of being put up for adoption, but there was talk of me going to a special school. And my mum said no. She was adamant that I wasn't going to go to a special school. But, but I, maybe if I had have done, maybe that would have been a, 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 perhaps, perhaps a coping mechanism for her. So despite the fact of her feeling very ostracised herself and very challenged, and the fact that she was so young, she didn't give up on you at all? No, 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 she didn't, which I appreciate immensely. No, she didn't. She, uh, she sort of, she, she ploughed on, if you like, and carried on regardless. I appreciate that. I, I often say to her, I'm so glad that you, you were able to, to persist in your, your quest to keep me by your side, if you like. I mean, I mean, let's say, for example, she'd put me up for adoption and we met years later. I don't know if I could judge her for that because I don't know how I'd feel in that situation. Quite sobering, really. I can sympathise because my mother had a disability of her own. And I remember um, she told me years later when she fell pregnant with me that the first thoughts that went through her mind was, I hope he doesn't turn out like me. Yeah, wow. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. must have been awful. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because again, it goes back to that whole issue of guilt and uh, responsibility. Absolutely. And I, and I think there's this whole textbook sort of, oh, well, it, parenting's all plain sailing. And it, it, it really isn't. It's like any film like it has its trials, its tribulations, it, you know, its bumps, twists, turns. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, Email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk. And just before we continue with today's interview, just to let you know that a bumper episode has been created to complement this debut edition. It's again me in conversation with Martin Rhodes, in which this time we're talking about the relationship between him and his father, and the reason why he left a matrimonial home when Martin was just six years old citing his son's blindness as one of his reasons. Well worth a listen. You'll find all the details on my website, philip-anderson.co.uk. That's Philip with one L. And just navigate to Against the Odds. This is Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. Rewinding now, Martin, to the very beginning of your life, when you first emerged onto the world stage from where a lot of what we've been discussing today first occurred as a byproduct of your prematurity. You were born three months early and spent the following 12 weeks of your life in an incubator. Must have been a very worrying time for your mother. It was certainly touch and go so far as your survival was concerned. And in looking at the experiences of other parents, they nearly all said that for them, at that point, they didn't quite know where their child belonged, whether to them or the hospital. And I wondered whether it was the same for your mother. Yes, yes, it was. She didn't get that much chance to sort of hold me, really, apart apart from a few times sort of when I was first born. 
she felt like I was I, I, I was never going to see my home, if you like. Like, as you so rightly put it there before, my, she, I think she thought that the hospital was going to be my home for a long, long time, really. It's almost like saying, well, here's your child, but your child's going to be taken away from you for a while while, while we decipher what the difficulties your child's having are and whether it's going to have any sort of road to recovery. And um, to be honest, Philip, I actually died five times uh, during that period. That, I believe, was down to the amount of oxygen that I was being given. My saving sort of grace, if you like, was there was a gentleman who came, I think he was a priest, I think he was, who came to my bedside one evening and prayed for me. He, uh, he blessed me. And from that day on, I started breathing for myself. Now, that could be the only coincidence. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, surely not, never, that, that, that can't be the case. Now, I will never know whether that was the reason why I started breathing for myself or, you know, the, the incubation period was ready to come to an end, so it happened naturally. I'll never know that. Oh, what an interesting experience. And would you say since knowing that, it's influenced your religious beliefs in any way? It is the reason why I believe in God, or I believe that there's a greater force at work, if you like. Like, had that not happened to me, I don't know what my beliefs would be. That definitely plays a huge helping hand in my beliefs, even to this day. And presumably your blindness is a byproduct of your prematurity as well. Yes, yes, it was. Because of the amount of oxygen I was given, it damaged uh, my optic nerve. That's what was responsible for making me totally blind. I mean, all I had left really was a, a little bit of light perception. And you can replace most things, but uh, as you know, you can't replace nerves. Absolutely. And that's the same with myself. I've got bilateral optic nerve hypoplasia and your condition's called? Retinopathy of fibroclasia or retinopathy of prematurity. It can also be responsible for damaging certain parts of your brain. So, for example, it, it was always said that I, I did have mild learning difficulties. It does take me longer to grasp concepts, if you like, than perhaps most. Like I have to read something through a few times or I have to do something a few times before I've grasped it, especially if it's something practical. Now, numbers are something I struggle with. And that, that apparently is quite common with people who have uh, retinopathy of prematurity. Well, that's interesting because mine's the pituitary gland that causes a similar uh, problem for me. And as in your situation, my own inability to grasp concepts has been the bane of my life for, well, as long as I can care to uh, remember. And staying with your eyes for a moment, Martin, I understand matters didn't end there. And in fact, they got considerably worse as time went on with the emergence of a growth which appeared on both your eyes, which caused you significant discomfort throughout your childhood. That eventually led to yet another set of life-changing circumstances for you at a crucial point in your early teens. What can you tell us about that difficult period in your life? It was like a white, chalky substance, like a growth, if you like, that grew all, all across the front of my eyes. And that was so painful. I couldn't close my eyes at night or anything. It was really, really painful. We tried various things to, to remove it. We tried, tried to fit in a soft contact lens. We also tried having it burnt away using laser treatment. And it, it just regrew. In fact, it grew more ferociously the second time. Eventually, at the age of 13, I just had my eyes removed. 
and had prosthetics. And although that happened at such a crucial time in my life, I can honestly look back and say it was one of the best things I ever did because I was free of pain. I mean, I may have lost a slight amount of light perception, but nothing, nothing to write home about, if you like. Nothing, nothing that I really miss because my quality of life improved so much. What about your self-confidence? Because you mentioned about it happening at a crucial point in your life and obviously you were making that transition to puberty at that point. Do you remember it having any effect on your confidence? Because obviously it changed your facial features somewhat. Yes, it did. What I did find difficult was how I must look, you know, like, because at first, before I had my eyes fitted, I had to have, it was like like a shell with a, with a hole in the middle fitted to my eye sockets while my eyes were being made. And to go out with those those shells in, that was really daunting. My mum and my granddad at the time were really supportive about me sort of going out and meeting family. And it, it started off with sort of small trips to sort of visit family members at their houses and things like that. And then eventually I went to visit one of my friends. So that was the hardest part. But without sounding rude, Martin, would you say your blindness defines you? I hope not. No, I'd hate to think anybody who's defined by the disability. I think if, if a person's in a situation where the disability defines them, I, I think that's a real shame. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. So no, I'd like to think that my personality, my thoughts, my feelings and my interests define me rather than my disability. It's interesting. I guess up until the age of sort of 16, if you like, when I first left mainstream school, all my friends were sighted. I only had a few friends who were blind. When I went to specialist college, most of the students there were blind and I'd never been in an environment before where everyone was in the same boat as me, if you like. So I, I did struggle to fit in at first. I find now I have more, probably have more friends who are blind than more friends who can see. And I, I often wonder whether that's because I transitioned from the mainstream environment into a specialist environment. And I also wonder if, had I gone to a specialist school from a, a young child, yes. would I have any sighted friends? Would I, would I even be quite institutionalised? Like I, I feel lucky to have had the best of both worlds, if you like. It is. And you don't just have a visual impairment, do you? You've also got an irregular heartbeat. Well, a regular heartbeat, but it's more rapid than others. Yes, yeah, I'm tachycardic. So I've basically got a condition called paroxysmal tachycardia, which basically means that occasionally my heartbeat can beat slightly faster than usual. It's a bit, the only way I can describe it is a bit like the feeling of having tinnitus. If you ever had tinnitus and you sort of get that, that like a vibration feeling? Yes. If you like in, in your head, it's similar to tinnitus. And uh, it can be quite unnerving at times, although I haven't had any problems with it now for quite a few years it's usually when i'm tired or if i'm overthinking about something i got it i first got it when i was 18 i went out for a few drinks with friends after my gcse's and i got quite drunk at the time and they said that it was too much alcohol that originally caused it there is a history of heart conditions in my family so whether it's a combination of me consuming too much alcohol at a particular time or the fact that there's a heart condition in the family, especially on my side, which is the roads side of the family. I don't know, but it could have been a combination of the two, I guess. 
Indeed. And I think it's safe to say you've had your fair share of challenges in life, Martin, but it's not so much the challenges, but the manner in which you've dealt with them that's spoken to me today. And in fact, all power to your elbow, it goes to show what can be achieved in the face of overwhelming odds. A clear demonstration of the power of the human spirit, I think, at work, and the fact that you've not allowed any of those experiences to deter you in any way, shape or form. And it's with this in mind I would like to use the remaining minutes, if I may, to discussing one other challenge, this time in your adult life, when you decided to embrace independence for the first time. You'd been to college and you'd had a taster of independence and now you wanted to go at it solo, so to speak. So you put your name down for a flat and that time eventually came for you to move in. Now you've described it as one of the greatest challenges you've had to face in your adult life. It occurred 14 years ago. Take us back to that moment if you would. I've been here since 2007 and I remember it as though it was yesterday. The day I moved in, my family helped me to move my belongings from my mum's house and it all went pretty plain sailing. And then we got to the point in the evening where our family said, right, okay, well, you know, you're all, you're all set up now. We'll, we'll leave you to enjoy your new flat, if you like. And off they went. And I remember just sitting here thinking, what in the world do I do now? You know, the, at first, the idea of moving into it, I know, oh, I'll have my own space, I'll have my own independence, I can do what I like, when I like. And then there was the added learning to cook for myself. Although I had living skills at college, I struggled even to make a sandwich when I first moved into to my flat. I really did, because I didn't put into practice what I'd learned at college, I was quite lazy really. I used to just eat when, when meals were provided. I didn't home in and make use of those skills I was taught at the time, thinking that I'd, I'll remember them. When I eventually woke up and smelt the coffee, if you like, right. the reality was something quite different. For, for example, I remember when I, I first started cooking for myself and I, I tried to, I made some bacon on the grill and I, I burnt it at first and I to make a sandwich and I made a, a mess all over my chopping board and all over my kitchen surfaces, one of my surfaces, for example. And I remember calling my mum a few times and I said, yeah, this, this hasn't gone quite right. What do I do about this? And that hasn't gone quite right. And eventually, the more mistakes I made, that led to me learning from them very quickly and making less mistakes. Everything I've learned has been self-taught. For example, like I use a George Foreman grill and I cook most meat-based products on, on the grill. And I also use the oven. So for example, I can I, I do, I make pizza in the oven, oven chips, uh, jacket potatoes, things like that. But it's all self-taught. What's your favourite meal you like to cook? I like to make shepherd's pie. But I usually buy one of those ready-made shepherd's pie, like a ready meal. When it, if it comes to preparing something from scratch, I'm not really good at that kind of thing. Did you ever learn that at college, food preparation? Not really, no. At, at the first college I went to at Henshaw's, we were basically told to throw everything in a mixing bowl and put it in the microwave. We were only really taught to microwave cook. You are joking. No, no, no. And, that and was, this was where? This was at Henshaw's College back in 2000. Is that a specialist college? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, up in North Yorkshire. I was there from... 2000 to 2003. And that was their idea of independence? That was their idea of independence, yeah. And I, uh, So that, of course, was detrimental. 
I can't say that I was totally to blame for my lack of living skills when I moved into my flat. That that was part of the reason. Did you get the impression that they were perhaps a little inadequate as well in that department? I did really, yeah, because they used to have cassette tapes. And for example, that they'd say things like, do this, stop, take this utensil, stop. Well, they worked on the basis that it was a one size fits all. And everybody's got different levels. Everybody learns at different speed. Everybody's got different levels of independence to begin with. And that was really a really difficult time for me. It's quite insulting as well, isn't it? Assuming that yes, it is. you weren't capable of aspiring to anything better. No, exactly. Yeah, it is. And when I remember showing them to my mum and my mum said, that is not conducive to independent living in your own environment. It just, it's not. I can't see how it's going to work. That played a huge part in my lack of ability to be able to prepare a meal for myself when I moved into my flat, which is why I basically got, got my oven and I got, I high marked my oven using Tactimar. It's a paint, a seafood paint, if you like, that you paint onto your oven. And when it dries, it leaves an indentation. That's how I set my different temperatures, oven temperatures, if you like. Since getting Alexa, that's been really helpful as well because you can you can actually label your timers on, on the Alexa smart speakers. So you can have a timer for meat, a timer for potatoes, a timer for vegetables, etc. And you've been on your own for how long? 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an achievement, don't you think? It is, yeah. And I feel like I've come a long way since then. And I, the idea, I mean, I, I go, still go and visit my parents sometimes. At weekends, I go and stay, stay with my mom and stepdad. I'm always glad to get home. I, I, I miss my own environment, my own space. Have you made it home? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I have, yeah. I enjoy my, my technology. So I have two Google smart speakers, four Amazon Alexas. I've always liked leather. Uh, I have a reclining leather chair and a, re- a reclining leather sofa. It reclines at each end. But yeah, yeah, I, I love the feel of it, the smell of it. I always have done. I thoroughly enjoy living here, to be honest. I've, I've, I've had some great times here and I continue to have good, good memories of living here. And knowing you as I do, Martin, that certainly goes without saying. And I'm certainly looking forward to visiting you just as soon as the lockdown restrictions have been lifted. For anyone listening today, Martin, what would your one piece of advice be to them? One of the things I would say, which which, which I've realised during the course of this interview, is if you can participate in something like this, as I have, it's a huge help in laying it to rest or moving on from it, if you like, or giving you the ability to compartmentalise it and make sense of it. Uh, Also, I would say, always remember that you're in control. You, know, you, you drive your own car. So perseverance is the key. But it's been a huge help for me in me becoming the person I am today, really. Oh, sound advice there, Martin. Thank you very much indeed. And the perfect note, I think, on which to end this first episode in the first series of Against the Odds. You acquitted yourself admirably today. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity, Philippe, and I hope this helps someone out there somewhere. It's been fantastic. Well, just in conclusion, Martin, it's your opportunity now to play us out with your legacy track. This is a track you've chosen which you feel best sums up your life. I certainly have, yeah. It's Michael Holiday's story of my life. It takes me back to being a child and listening to the local radio, and I used to record it every time the presenter on the station played it. Someday I'm gonna write the story of my life I'll tell about the night we met 
And now my heart can forget the way you smile at me. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website for more information and to complete the guest interviewee questionnaire. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our express written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.